I'm going to speak on a topic today that I'm not positive that I'll solve anything, and I may create more questions and problems than I do solve. But I think it is one at least we need to be aware of and to be thinking about because it is one of the identifying signs of the times in which we live. And I'm going to start off by just reading a brief, a brief section or two from a clipping that was in our newspaper down there. Anyway, I took this um, article here from a clipping in the register guard down there, and it's entitled, Antichrist Fever Reaches High Pitch. So let me just read a few brief excerpts from this before I start. The leaders of several small warring countries and a giant computer industry have all been singled out as suspects, but so has the World Bank, NATO, and the credit card system. Now that the time of tribulation is near, at least by some calculations, the finger-pointing has skipped from El Nino's end of the world weather to the Y2K computer virus that threatens havoc at the turn of the century. More than 40 million Americans believe the millennium will bring the second coming of Christ according to a recent Los Angeles Times poll. Followers of biblical prophecy would add that such a day will launch the battle between ultimate good and evil and the great deceiver and the faithful followers of Christ. And then it summarizes the three main books in the Bible that cover it, Revelation, the first letter of John, and Daniel. Then at the very end of the article it says, I feel we're living in days of unparalleled global challenge, says Lanier Burns, chairman of the theology department of Dallas Theological Seminary. Conglomerates that monopolize, corporations that downsize, sports teams we can't follow anymore because they move away or dissolve, fear of tyranny, these things make us angry. The idea of God as a warrior and conqueror is pretty popular right now. Well, it's been, uh, of course, the truth for some period of time. Maybe they're just waking up to it. So this morning, my sermon topic is going to be an overview of Antichrist. Now again, let me state, I, I, there's no one really that knows the complete and final answer to this. All we can do is look at the various passages in the scripture that tell us about it, and then we can keep our eyes open. Remember, one of the things we're told in the Bible is to watch. So notice Paul's view. Paul viewed the future. He was certainly futuristic in his approach. And so here's what he said here. I read this scripture yesterday. I don't want to dwell on this one. I want, to, I want to skip up to another one. But in verse number one of 2 Timothy 3, we read here, we read that in the last days, perilous times were going to come. And then verse number 13, here's one of the signs of the times. Evil men and we have here seducers. The actual Greek word is sorcerers. It means anybody who's involved in the occult. Evil men and, uh, let's just say, occultists shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul was certainly aware of uh, the problems that were going to exist in the last times, and he also said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 6, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6, he talked about this mystery of iniquity. Now, you can hear all kinds of ideas and uh, versions of what people think it is. Uh, all I can read is what it says here, and I don't know any more than the next person. I'm just pointing out that we do need to be aware, however, there is something that's called this mystery of iniquity, and he said it is already at work. But what you're going to read here, as we'll continue on in this sermon, Paul is attaching it to the end times and the time period in which we live. And if we're not living in the end times, all I can say is God help the next generations that are coming up. 
The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only who who now restrains will until it arises out of the midst. Then shall that wicked one be revealed. And notice the time setting. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. There's the time setting. So that is an example here of Paul's view of what the future was going to bring. There's more, of course, in his epistles than that, but this is just a summary of it. Now, let's notice what John himself said about the Antichrist. Remember, Antichrist just means against, contrary, or hostile to God and to Christ. Second, uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 18. 1 John 2 and verse 18. Little children... It is the last time. Now keep in mind, when uh, John is writing about the last time, he includes a very, very broad segment of time. And that segment of time is from the time Christ returns, that is, until Christ came the first time, until he returns. All that time period is very broadly defined as the last times. But we know specifically, many, many, and probably the bulk of the, past, uh, the, of the prophecies will relate to the actual time Christ returns. So he said here, little children, it is the last time, and you have heard that Antichrist shall come. So he's defining a specific, perhaps individual. That would be my guess, Antichrist. But then he adds this. Even now, there are many Antichrists. So here around 90 AD, we don't have an exact date when John died. He is the last of the apostles. We do know this. And he wrote his uh, letters in the book of Revelation around 100 A.D., let's say in the 90s and 100 A.D. AD. So he lived uh, as, a, as an aged man and died at that time. So he said at that time, as early as 90 or 100 A.D., there were many antichrists already there. Remember now, it denotes they're hostile, anti, they're against Christ. Whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, if we go back to verse number, if we go up here to verse number 22, he says, Who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now let's not get confused here and assume that we're talking about somebody stands up and they wave their fist and they say Jesus isn't the Christ. That text has a much deeper, deeper meaning. You see, you remember. How do you deny Christ? Paul said they profess that they know Christ, but in works they deny him. So these are people who deny Christ in the things they do. They may profess his name, but they deny the works that he said were to do. That's how they deny him. He is the Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. So he defines it as anyone who is hostile to God and who refuses to obey God, even though he may profess God. Go back here to the book of Genesis. We can say, certainly, it had its roots and its beginning clear back at that time. Because we read in Genesis 6, verse number 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let's ask this question. Was that, was that behavior and that attitude and that view hostile to God? Of course it was. Now, we don't use the word antichrist at that time period simply because Christ didn't, that, that, that term was not attached until Christ came as the Christ. But the attitude was established at a very early date. It actually had its beginning before the earth was even created. Because if we go back here 
to um, Isaiah the 14th chapter. I won't dwell at a great length on these two chapters. I'm going to just read from briefly here. I simply want to set the stage just to see when this whole spirit developed and has continued ever since. And this is in Isaiah 14 and verse number 14, beginning in verse 13. Well, beginning in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Lucifer meant the light bringer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the, of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He was a created being. Created beings cannot be greater than God. Now they can think they are. I mean, after all, how many human beings who are created beings think they're greater than God? So don't think for one moment that just because uh, someone is created, he cannot get big-headed. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now that is uh, one of the texts that establish it. The second one here is in Isaiah, the 28th chapter. Uh, pardon me, not Isaiah, but Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. Here's the beginnings of the Antichrist. It had to start before man was even placed on this earth. Ezekiel 28, verse 15. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. And the Hebrew means perversity. What do we mean by perversity? A good definition of the word in the Hebrew is wandering off course. In other words, you start on a certain line and then you bend and go off. That's perversity. So this is what happened to him. As we read, your heart, verse 17, was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. Here was the beginning, then, of the Antichrist. Now, remember what John said here. Let's go back to 1 John 4 and verse number 3. And we will say that John, we'll see here that John said there were many, many Antichrists. So what we find, then, is the manifestation of this general attitude and spirit found everywhere. And it comes in with a myriad of new reasonings. It comes with a myriad of, uh, of postulations. It comes with a myriad of ideas and manifestations. But it's found practically everywhere. 1 John 4, verse number 3. I'm going to pick this up in verse number 2 because uh, I want to show you the actual physical meaning of what John intended when he wrote this verse. It has a broader significance and meaning, of course, as we understand it today. But here's what he says. Verse 1, Believe, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know we the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. Now, the problem with this text here is the word is come, or the words is come, that little brief expression there, is actually the perfect participle. And it should be translated, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, what happened in the first, toward the tail end of the first century? We had the development of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was, was Greek Hellenism attached to Christianity. 
And the fundamental belief of Gnosticism, based on Greek theology, was that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, that he was merely a phantom. It's referred to as docetism. And he came as a phantom, and so therefore he really didn't die. Now that manifested itself in about a hundred different ways when we finally got down to the Arian controversy in the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D., but that was its origin. So they didn't believe that Jesus Christ actually came in the flesh and they, they preached that he was a phantom. Therefore, he really didn't die. He didn't pay the penalty for our sins. It was just a, 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 a vision that people think happened. That's why John is making, he's dealing with this specific problem at that time. Now its manifestations, of course, are myriad in their own right. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, present participle, is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that it, it should come and even now already is in the world. Now what we call Christianity today, nominal Christianity, is the manifestation of this, these Gnostic concepts. It's a sort of a blend that has occurred within Christianity and what we call Christianity today has been greatly tainted with this, these various concepts that began at this time period. If you read the history of what happened from the 2nd and 3rd and 4th, 5th centuries A.D., you'll see what happened to the church. So that is an example there. Now in 2 John number 7, 2 John verse 7, many deceivers are entered in the world who confess not that Jesus is come. We got, the, we got in this particular case a present participle in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now there are a number of different versions that translate this is, this is come in... Um, in a, in a number of ways, and uh, I think the preponderance of it is from uh, three or four of the major translations is, who confess not to Jesus Christ as, as coming in the flesh. Now, I know that it was used to say that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh today in us through the Holy Spirit, and that is also true. There's nothing wrong with that. But the original technical meaning, John was addressed... John's letters were polemics against the Gnostics. And so this is what we have here. Now, in 1 John 2, verse number 18. 1 John 2, verse 18. I read uh, this text uh, a few minutes ago. I want to just touch on it again. Or at least uh, I, I spoke on it briefly. It is the last time you have heard that in, that. Antichrist shall come. So John had in view, even though there were antichrists in his day, and he saw the manifestation of it in many ways, he, he, he spoke about a specific thing that was to come in the future. Now this is what I'm, uh, I'm going to address today. Now the first thing I want to do is give a sort of, of, a, of a synopsis of this, this antichrist spirit, this antichrist attitude as it is manifested in the Bible. And I'm going back to the Old Testament, and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to find any text there that says it is the Antichrist. But that was the roots in the beginning of it, and it started all the way through, and it's continued right up to this day, so the Bible does specifically call it the Antichrist. Go back here to Genesis 3, verse number 15. These are the various manifestations of it. Genesis 3, verse number 15. Here was the problem that occurred when Adam and Eve sinned. And then here's the instruction that God gave. Now what you're going to see here is the development 
of this struggle, and it really isn't a struggle. People view it as, that, as a struggle. And this is one of the big problems, again, one of the, the, the Gnostic concepts that developed in what we call Christianity today. And that is that this is a time period God is trying to save the world, but uh, he obviously is failing because there are far more people that uh, die without even knowing God and Christ than uh, have ever heard of him. And I read the text to you yesterday where the message is going to be taken to these people that haven't even heard of him. And so consequently, God is losing out, Satan is winning. That's not a, that's not a true concept at all. God has, has, been, has allowed these two polarizations to occur from the very beginning, but there isn't any struggle. When God, when God decides to set his hand to do something, he will do it. We're in a time of trial and test now. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is a prophecy concerning the hostility between Satan and Jesus Christ. That's what it means here when it says, there will be this animosity between thy seed and her seed. Christ was the seed of the very first mother because he was a human. And it shall bruise thy head. See, Christ was simply, he wasn't, he wasn't really slain, see. Um, uh, he was only bruised on the heel, whereas Satan will be bruised in the head. That's the difference. In other words, it's showing the struggle here. That was to start at the very beginning, and it has continued on down to this day. Revelation 12, verse number 4. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. We all know what happened when Herod found out that this king of the Jews had been born. And God revealed to the wise men that they should, uh, you know, get out of there quick. And Satan was so, I mean, uh, Herod was so furious, he killed all of the, the young children in that area from, from two years old under. He tried to kill Christ. Who was really doing it? Satan was, wasn't he? Because who's the one doing, here, doing it here? The dragon. Who's the dragon? That great red dragon the Bible talks about that is Satan. Tried to kill Christ. But God intervened, and remember, he told Joseph to get out of there and go to Egypt. So he was delivered and he was made safe. There's the struggle defined right there. Now you find it manifested in many ways. Here's another example of it here in Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. Deuteronomy 13 and verse number 13. Certain men, children of Belial, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Idolatry. Sons of Belial. What does the word Belial mean in the Hebrew? The literal meaning is without a yoke. In other words, they have no, they have no restraint. They're, they're, they're unrestrained in their actions and in their behaviors. They do whatever they want to do. They don't have any law. They don't have any ethics. They have nothing to hold them back. That's what the Bible defines as children of Belial. Who are they? They're the Antichrist. That's a manifestation of it, as we see in the Old Testament period. 
Now, I'm not going to spend much time. I'll, I'm just passing through this to call it to your attention. But this is in uh, Matthew, the fourth chapter. This is a text with which we are all familiar. And this is the entire account here. You may look at it yourself. I'm sure many of you already have many times. But when Satan tempted Christ right after he had fasted the 40 days, remember that? He did everything in his power. And I mean, he caught Christ at his weakest moment. I don't know how many of you have fasted for a long period of time. I've never really fasted for a long period of time. I fasted one time for three days and three nights without water or food and worked during that time period. But I'll guarantee you the last day when I crawled, walked up that hill to get a meal, I even thought Brussels sprouts were good. <laughs> Christ fasted 40 days. When I was down in Springfield, Missouri a number of years ago, there was a church lady there who decided she was going to go on one of these health fasts for 40 days. And the way that the health fast is supposed to work, after you fast about 30 days, then your appetite is supposed to return. And after 30 days, her appetite didn't return. And by the time the 40 days was up, she was dead. That's right. Here Christ fasted 40 days. And Satan went after the first thing. Oh, boy, you're hungry now. Why don't you do this? That was certainly the Antichrist, trying to destroy Christ and disqualify him from the responsibility God had given him. In fact, what did Jesus himself say about Satan? John 14 and verse number 30. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes. Christ knew he had to have that final encounter with Satan prior to his death, and he was coming to do it. And if you read the account, what do we read? Satan entered into Judas. Now, that certainly was the Antichrist. Anything that is contrary to God and to Christ and his word is the Antichrist. And uh, here's another example, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come an apostasy. That's a proper Greek translation. Now, as we have said in times past, how can you apostatize if you never had the truth to begin with? There's only one way you can apostatize. You have to start out with the truth and you have to cast it aside. So the apostasy here has to involve somebody that had the truth and then turn from it. Now we know what happened in worldwide in 1974 and 75. This didn't happen to the Protestants and the Catholics. They never had the truth to begin with. Well, they may have had it clear back first, second, and third centuries, but after that they didn't. So here's an apostasy that was to take place. Now I think we can conclude that that has already taken place. But now here's another, here's another part of it that hasn't taken place. Now I've heard people give all kinds of ideas. I even had some of my own in times past. But I, I, don't, I don't have any really idea anymore now. But I tell you one thing, I was careful you never did hear me preach who I thought it was. Here's what it says. There shall come a an apostasy... And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Is that Antichrist? You bet it is. There's a manifestation of it in the time period in which we live. Now, I stated one of the books that covers this Antichrist movement, or this Antichrist, is Daniel. So we'll notice a few passages here in Daniel, chapter 8 and verse number 23. In the latter time of their kingdom. Now, we're tying this into the time of the end. Why do we know it's the time of the end? Because it says right here in verse 17, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall, shall, uh, shall, uh, shall be the vision. We're pinpointing it. And he says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance shall stand up. I don't know what he's going to look like. I don't know the significance of this word fierce countenance. Sometimes, sometimes people can really have a mean look and you can even misinterpret it. I was uh, went on three nationwide baptizing tours and on one of those tours, I don't remember which one it was on, I think it was 1958, uh, I was counseling with about 20 people on the subject of baptism, and down at the end of the table sat this guy just smirking at me. And the more I'd say, the more he'd smirk. And his teeth would come up and he'd smirk. And boy, the more he smirked, the stronger I got. And boy, I mean, I really laid it, laid it on. And, and uh, most of them decided to be baptized. And he came up to me afterward and he said, Young man, he said, that was one of the most heartwarming speeches I've ever heard. That's how you can misinterpret so anyway, uh, what is this fierce countenance? What does it mean? How is this fellow going to appear? But there's one thing about him. You read the rest of the account here. This is the Antichrist. Whether this is the man or whether this is a manifestation of it remains to be seen, but it certainly is a part of it. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice again what we read about this, uh, this spirit of Antichrist or this Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And verse number 8, what do we read about him? Then shall that wicked or that lawless one be revealed. The word means lawless. Now if someone is lawless, is that Antichrist? Certainly is. Shall that lawless one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Lawlessness. That's a manifestation of the Antichrist. Anyone who is hostile and contrary to God and to God's law and to God's authority is in the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 2, verse number 18. I won't go back to that again. I'll just point out, as I've already called your attention to it, there was to be an Antichrist to come. And then Revelation 13, beginning here in verse number 16, we have the term used here, the beast. Now, we have speculated back and forth and discussed this in times past. I'm not really sure what the answer is, whether it's talking about the beast as a system or whether it's talking about a man who is a representative of that system. Uh, but it certainly is Antichrist because as you read here in Revelation 13, verse number 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads that no man might buy or sell save he have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of the man. I can tell you, people have been trying to figure out that number 666 for I don't know how long. But I remember a comment made by one of the church fathers 
I think I wrote it up when I did the article from Revelation to Apostasy, and uh, whichever one of these early church fathers was, he said, he said it's a very wise thing, unwise thing, to try to calculate who this man is. God will reveal who he is in his, t in his proper time. So here we see, what, is, what do we see here? He has a mark, he has a name, and he has a number. People have speculated that it's uh, the 666 symbol in the, in the United Nations and uh, the New World Order and all that kind of thing. It remains to be seen. But anyway, that's another manifestation of it. Now, what is the goal of Antichrist? What has always been the goal of Antichrist? To thwart God's plan and purpose. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 4, once again. If you can get an individual to accept a person above God, then you have created an Antichrist. No man or person should ever be given precedence above God. God's law and God's truth is what must be the goal and what is what we must abide by. So we read here of this man here. What's he going to do? He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. In other words, he's going to assume divine authority that does not belong to him. He does not let the Bible be his guide. Above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing, and that word is translated a number of different ways, whichever one it means here, rather than the word showing, it can be approving himself to be, proclaiming himself, making himself, appointing himself, displaying himself, rendering himself. He may not sit up there and say, I'm God, look at me, worship me. He doesn't have to. If he takes the prerogatives and assumes God's authority and power, and then people look to him instead of God. The question is, what do we mean here by the temple of God? I can't tell you for sure. I do know that there's a large number of people today that believe that the Jews are going to rebuild the temple down in Palestine, in Jerusalem. I took uh, Hebrew tutoring from a Hebrew, uh, a real die-on-the-wool Orthodox Jew when I was up in Denver, and I mean, he had the black beard and the skull cap and the whole nine yards. And I asked him one time, uh, his name was David Yehuda. I said, well, Mr. Yehuda, um, if the Jews rebuilt the temple down in Palestine, would they go back to sacrifices? And he paused a moment. He said, yes, they would. I have heard and I've read, and whether this is true or not, I don't know. I can only report what I've read. That is that they have already built all of this, the uh, stoneworks for a temple, so when is, when, when, if and when the times come, they can raise it very rapidly. If that's what it's talking about, that may be the case. On the other hand, maybe it's talking about the church. Because in the New Testament, the church is actually spoken of as a temple of God in, in, in several instances. It may be referring to that. I do not know. All I'm pointing out to you here is when this man comes, he's going to oppose, oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God. That is the Antichrist. And he's hostile and contrary to God. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 now. and We'll notice a few passages from here that add to this. Daniel chapter 7, verse number 8. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. 
Historically, we have always understood this to mean because the Roman Empire fell in 476 AD. It was destroyed by the Vandals, the Heruli, and the Ostrogoths. Then the papacy came upon the scene under Justinian. Remember, the Roman Empire was divided into two halves at that time, the Eastern and the Western Division. And Justinian, over in the Eastern Division, raised up an, a, a great warrior by the name of Belisarius, and he organized an army, and they drove out the, the Vandals and the Heruli and the Ostrogoths. So this assumed here, most authorities who go through this historically assume that's what it's referring to. And who's this little horn that came up and then spoke great things against, great, against God? The papacy. That is a manifestation of it. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. That's right. When Constantine came on the scene, there was a great power struggle taking place which had been quite common among the Roman emperors. The civil wars were fought there after the death of Julius Caesar killed thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers and men. And, and uh, uh, Constantine came on the scene and uh, a, a vision of a, of a cross appeared to him in the heavens and, and, a, and a voice or he ever saw a vision said, by this sign conquer. And so he assumed that that was a Christian symbol and he won that great battle and he converted to Christianity. Now he wasn't baptized until his deathbed. The reason he wasn't baptized, he didn't feel he was ever ready to live, live, live it because he couldn't live up to it, but at least he was honest. But he's the one that changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And they made it a law that no one was to Judaize and keep the seventh-day Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, any longer. That's what happened to the Sabbath. They were keeping God's Sabbath day clear up to the 300s A.D. until it was blotted out. And we live, you know, how many thousand years after that and just assume that a Sunday is a proper day. It wasn't the day that God set aside. That was certainly the Antichrist. Now, as we go here to uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse number 11. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. So we're talking about another time period here. And this appears to have been during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. See, uh, remember, I mentioned a comment the other day that the Greek language was a universal language. And most of the scattered Jews couldn't even speak Hebrew. They all spoke, they all spoke Greek. Why? Because Alexander Great, Great conquered the known world. And upon his death, the Greco-Macedonian Empire was divided up into four divisions. His four generals took control. One of them took control of Egypt. He was the Ptolemies. Another one took control of Syria in the north there. He was a Seleucidae. And then there was another one, and uh, another one took over Macedonia, and another one took over Greece. They got to fighting among themselves. And the wars that took place between the Seleucidae and the Ptolemies went on for hundreds of years. And Antiochus was one of these Greeks who conquered the Holy Land. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That happened. It wasn't until about 200 A.B.C. that the Jews finally revolted under the Maccabees, and they drove out the, the, uh, the uh, Greeks, and they won their own country back, and they held it until the Romans came in around, right around just before the A.D. period, and the Romans took over the whole known world at that time. Greek was the universal language. So here was a man, one of these Greeks here. And uh, I should call something else to your attention if you're not aware of this. I hope you don't mind me uh, digressing here just a moment. People think 
of Greece today and they think the people who live in Greece today are Greeks. They're not Greeks. They're Slavs. The Greeks, the actual original Greeks long disappeared from history just as the Persians did and just as uh, the Israelites did. And what happened when those empires collapsed, then the vacuum, the political vacuum that was left open and other people moved in. The whole of the Middle East today is occupied by Arabs and they call themselves Persians. They're not Persians at all. Hanay, who was one of the writers that I, I read his book when I was researching the migrations of Israel, and he was of the very firm opinion that the Prussians were the Persians. He may well be right. But the Slavs migrated in and took over Greece and all that, that land between Germany and Russia. And the Slavs are made up of two types of people. Northern Slavs and Southern Slavs. Southern Slavs are dark-complected. Northern Slavs are blonde, and they're very light-complected. And in Russia itself, the entire nation of Russia has an undercurrent of Nordic stock. Why? Because Russia could not bring peace, and they called in for the Swedes to, to take over Russia and dominate it and set up a kingdom, and the Swedes did. That's where the name Rus came from. So when you're talking about Greeks today, you're really talking about Slavs. Who are the Slavs? They were the children of Elam. Who was Elam? A son of Shem, a brother of Arphaxad, and of Asher, and of the other sons of Shem. And when I did that study into that subject, I, it, it didn't take me too long to realize that all the Caucasian people in the world are all related. They're just a bunch of kissing cousins. Well, maybe fighting cousins, too. So anyway, this Greek here, was the one that set himself up as Antichrist. Daniel 11, verse number 36. Here's another manifestation of it. The king, now what, are we time, what time period are we talking about here? The time of the end. Read it in verse number 35. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper until the indignation be accomplished. He's going to be given that right and that authority to do that. I can tell you, folks, if we're alive here and we're witnessing these things, it is not going to be a very happy time. I remember years ago, I used to watch the Huntley-Brinkley report. I get some mad, I just sit there seething because of all the stuff they were reporting, what was going on in the world. And I could see their liberal bias was just unending. And uh, I thought that, uh, that uh, they were doing it deliberately. And it wasn't until I went into this very extensive study on what is really taking place behind the scenes that I realized that they, were, they, they didn't any more, any, anything more than the next guy. They're just reporting the, whole, the, the way the whole system operates. People don't give any thought about what's behind it. In this particular case here, what's behind it? The spirit of Antichrist. That's what we see taking place. Daniel 11, verse number 45. One, one event that's going to take place here, I don't know how soon you hear talk about it every once in a while, and every time uh, somebody, some politician in this country brings up the um, thought that we should move the capital of, of uh, Israel, which is located in Tel Aviv, over to Jerusalem. Oh, I tell you, boy, the Arabs throw a fit. They do not want the Jews to set up their capital in Jerusalem. Somebody's going to move a capital to Jerusalem. Now, maybe the Jews will be able to accomplish it by some backdoor method. 
But here's what it says. He shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. This is going to be one of the identifying events. So keep that in mind. And then one more here I want to show you here before I move on to the next topic, which I must do so rapidly. Let's go to, uh, to Revelation 13 and verse number 6. And notice what we read here. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. I don't suppose that people who see that are going to recognize it for what it is. Who hear it are going to recognize it for what it is. I'm just saying what we need to do is keep our eyes open and watch these things. And when we see these things, we may have the clue provided that will give us the answer. So what we really see here in a summary before I go to the next topic is that when we're looking at this thing of Antichrist, it started out, first of all, repudiating and rejecting the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it manifests itself by it rejects his priesthood, it rejects his kingship, it rejects his prophetic office, it has substituted other methods of atoning and receiving forgiveness of sins, and it has changed God's word and it has changed God's law. That's a pretty good summary of the whole Antichrist. Now, Let's look at some scriptures here that indicate Antichrist as an individual. Let's go to Revelation 13, verse number 17. What do we read here? Verse 16. He causes all. And it says here, he has a number. So he has a number and a name and a mark. It warns those who have that mark upon them that they're going to suffer the wrath of God. Now, don't ask me what that mark is. I, at one time, I believed it was worshiping on Sunday because God gave his Sabbath as a sign and he said it will be on your hand and between your eyes. But now I've come to think perhaps, I just say perhaps, uh, we hear a lot today about the implantation of a little um, capsule right in, your, right in your wrist here and right in your forehead because those are the two warmest spots on the whole body and the way the power supply on that thing works is that it allows it to work continuously through body heat. And, uh, it, and it may be used as an identifying emblem or sign of some type. No man can buy or sell without it. I don't know whether that's it. I had heard about the movie The Manchurian Candidate many, many times. And finally one day it came on TV and I said, I'm just going to watch this thing and see what it's about. And it was so tame and mild compared to what takes place today. I mean, it was a generation behind but back at the time it was first done, it was a very first example of, of mind control. So whatever this means, that remains to be seen. I do not know. We'll be skipping back and forth here several times between Daniel and Revelation. So let's go to, uh, to uh, Daniel 8, verse number 23. <clears throat> In the latter time of their kingdom, now we're talking about this, this, uh, this, this individual, we're talking about an individual now, a king of fierce countenance shall stand of fierce countenance, and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. What does that mean? Well, the Greek, I mean the Hebrew means ignomatic riddles. Difficult questions. Perplexing answers. So what does it mean? Well, I can tell you, it means this man's an intellect. 
If you want to get an, a good education sometime, you ought to tune into some of those channels like uh, Bill Buckley and some of these others where they're discussing philosophical issues. And then listen to these men talk. I mean, they're, they're in a plane and a level above everybody else. They're thinker. They're great thinkers. And uh, this particular thing, this particular man here, what is it indicating? It's indicating he is some kind of an intellectual genius. You know, people who get to the top, if they're not very, very bright and very competent, they don't stay there very long. I'm not necessarily talking about politicians. They usually get to the top because they're the best at finagling and, and, uh, and selling themselves. But when we're talking about the kind of uh, control and power that really counts, you're, ta you're, you're looking at men who are on the level of geniuses. They say that, Hen that Henry Kissinger himself is a genius. So this is what we're looking at. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 10. I'm going to try to hold my fingers here in three places so I can skip back and forth here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 10. What's he going to do? It tells us here he's a master of deceit. It says here, with all deceivableness, you see, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of, 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 of unrighteousness in them that are perishing. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness. Now, what, what, is it, what does it really mean? It means he's going to convince people that they're doing righteous when in reality they're unrighteous. It's deceivableness. They're deceived. So what is he? He's certainly a master of deceit. Very good at it. Very adept at it. Very smooth. Very polished. Daniel 11, verse number 36. Notice something else about him here. I just skipped over this a moment ago, but I want to touch on it now. This king shall do according to his will. He's not interested in consensus. He's not interested in the best interests of the people. He's probably not even, in, not even interested in the stockholders. He's only interested in one thing, doing his will. Now, who's going to inspire him to do that? So what it indicates is, notice what we read here, he's going to mag magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things. What is he? He's a self-willed great orator. People are going to be moved by what he says. Most of you will not remember this. There are a number of you here who will. But I think every single one of you who are alive at the time, you will admit that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one of the most effective orators this country ever had. Boy, he would get up there and he'd have those, those, those uh, uh, what is it, fireside chats. And uh, I was just a boy at the time, but I remember when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And the next day, they had all of us kids come to school and they turned on the radios and we sat there and listened to him declare war on Japan. It's going to take somebody like that. And that's what this man is. He's a great or orator. Not only is he a great orator, he's a political genius. Uh, Revelation 17 and verse number 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, how do you bring along, how do you bring about a coalition? 
What does it take to bring along a consensus and a coalition and to get everybody in 100% agreement and to give their all to it? Unless you have a man there who has a savvy and the know-how to bring it about. So he has to be some kind of a political genius. Now going back to Revelation 13, verse number 17, here's what we read about him. That no man might buy or sell, save he have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of the name. So what is he? He has brought about, if we're talking about an individual here, which it certainly indicates to be, in other words, this is probably the, when the thing finally reaches its culmination. <clears throat> Others have probably worked to bring about the system, but when it finally reaches its culmination, this is going to be what this man is going to give to the world. He's going to give a system that's so controlled, you can't buy or sell unless you're a part of it. I remember when Safeway started doling out membership cards and you'd get a discount if you became a member of Safeway. But we found out that the purpose of those cards being doled out, this was the best possible way they could track every transaction that the public was doing so they would know how to prepare for the future. And boy, my wife and I shied away from it. I don't want Safeway or anybody else to know what I'm, know what I'm buying. But I, I dare say that if the government wanted to find out anything about you, they'd have the, if they don't already have that information, they'd have it at their fingertips just like that. I read a number of years ago that every single American has a dossier. And sometimes you'll remember this. When some individual makes the world new, makes the news, maybe he's committed some kind of crime or something, then all of a sudden the news media are telling you everything about the man that he, that he ever did practically. Remember that? Where did they get that information? And they'll have it within a day's time. They don't have to go researching all the relatives and friends for the last 30 or 40 years a man lived. So don't think the information age is not here. So he is a, uh, he's a commercial genius. And then Revelation 13, verse number 4. The dragon gave him his, his, his power and his seat and his great authority. And then you read here in verse number 4, They that worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast, they worshipped the dragon, and they said, Who is likened to the beast? Who is able to make war with him? He's a military genius. Nobody's going to be able to fight against him. I watched a special on TV a while back, and I'll tell you, I was astounded. Because what happened, I mean, if it ever comes back, I want to record it. It was what happened when a Russian sub sank 3,000 feet down, no, it was further than that, it was three miles down, fell three miles down into the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And the Russians couldn't do a thing about it, and it was loaded with nuclear weapons. Aha, so what's the U.S. government do? They got ahead of their, they got a hold of their old friend, boy, their buddy who has helped them in many, many instances, this genius by the name of Howard Hughes. And they got Howard Hughes to build a big ship, and the inside of that ship was hollow. And they put all the oil drilling equipment on that ship that they needed to do the job. So they went out there and they parked and they started lowering these pipes, huge pipes like they drill with oil wells. And uh, they would put a section on it at a time and lower it, a section at a time and lower it. They lowered 3,000 feet and at the bottom of this, these big pipes, they had a big pair of clamps. They picked up the Russian sub. They started... Raising the pipes again, cutting, taking each section off. They brought it right up inside of the ship, and the Russians couldn't even see what was going on. And when they finally got that sub back, of course they got exactly what they wanted. They got a hold of the nuclear heads. They wanted to see what the technology was. 
They, had, they were very kind to the Russians. They took a number of the Russian sailors that had died in that thing, and they gave them a, a decent burial. And the Russians were just absolutely demoralized. They couldn't imagine anybody with that kind of technical power that could go in there and do that kind of a feat. They couldn't begin to do it. This is a technical age in which we're living. So it just it illustrates, once again, if this man's a military genius, he is a good one. He's also a religious genius. I won't take the time here to, re, to refer to all of these texts here. Let me just point them to you. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and you'll see how he is going to deceive the, the nations and the world religiously. So he's a religious genius. And in Revelation 13, verse number 13, notice what it says here. He does great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So he's, he is also a miracle worker. Boy, this really, this really moves people. So he's going to perform miracles. Revelation 13, verse number 2. Who's he inspired by? The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. That's where it's coming from. What that means is that anybody that is in opposition to him prior to the time that God is going to cut him off is sticking his neck on the chopping block. I mean, I tell you, the government and these powers that be can take little people and just chew them up in little pieces and spit them out. So if anybody thinks they're going to start fighting the government, I can tell you, they, they're barking up the wrong tree. There's too much power there. I've already pointed out he's going to do his, Ill, his, his, uh, his own will. And in Daniel 11, verse number 38, we read here, In his estate shall he honor the God of forces. He's going to be obsessed, obsessed with this military power and this control that he's going to exercise over the world. And in Daniel 12, verse number 7, God is permitting this, but how is it going to happen? It's going to happen at the hands of some individual in some organization. What will happen is, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. Well, I'd say the power of the holy, the holy people is pretty well already scattered. I mean, you look at 200 different groups now. Now, whether or not this is even going to be worse, as we certainly know there's a tribulation coming, and who's going to be marked for it? So that's a part of the system, too. And he is going to destroy any religion that is contrary to him. Notice it here in Revelation 17, verse number 16. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked and eat her with fire and burn her with flesh. And this harlot, we know, in the Bible is a symbol of a church. So obviously this is some kind of a false religious system, and he's going to turn on it in the end. Maybe it's because it's going to stand in his way, try to prevent him from doing certain things, and then it's going to be destroyed too. In Revelation 17, verse number 17, God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and to give their kingdoms unto the beast. There's a world ruling government coming. The Bible says for three and a half years. I know there were people who were really shook up in the struggle that took place in the early 90s over there in the Middle East when George Bush was able to bring a coalition of, a coalition of nations together and roll over those Arabs in about a hundred hours. And what did, he all, what did he keep referring to? The New World Order, didn't he? So don't think the stage isn't set. 
Now we know that uh, they moved down in the Balkans. They now moved down over into East Timor. And uh, they're now making plans because they now recognize that they can't move rapidly enough. They're making plans in the United Nations to have a strike force of military personnel, crack troops, to move into any area within 24-hour period and take it over. So don't think it isn't developing. And then, of course, the system will be, Antichrist will be, will be destroyed. Notice Revelation 19, verse number 20. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, which wrought miracles in his presence. So we obviously must be looking at an individual or individuals, and certainly including a system. But it is a system of Antichrist. It's contrary to God. That wrought miracles before him, which with, he, which, with which he had deceived the nations, and uh, w w rather uh, with which he had deceived them that had to receive the mark of the beast and, uh, and worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. That has to be individuals. Unless it's speaking so broadly here that it means the whole systems are cast into the lake of fire, but I, I rather doubt it. And then in Daniel 8, verse number 25, the last text we read here, he shall stand up against a prince of princes. He's going to fight Christ when he returns. But he shall be broken without hand. So that's what's going to happen. That's the end of it. So as I pointed out when I first started out here today, I don't know whether I'm answering any questions. Maybe I've created more than I... Uh, than I uh, could possibly solve. But if I do one thing, I just want you to be much aware of the time period in which we're living, to keep your eyes open to what's going on, and whenever events happen, keep your eyes on very important uh, men in the world who seem to be gaining great power and control. Be alert and be wise. Maybe by that means we will be able to pinpoint something. Take these things very seriously, because we are living in very dangerous times.